invite you to turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, as we continue studying this Gospel. There are many sort of starts and stops through the year as we move to other texts and in the Easter season. We did jump ahead, of course, into uh, the later parts of the cross and resurrection, but now we back up again to where we were, coming to a significant part of this gospel and one of the most difficult parts of the gospel to interpret and rightly apply, that which is commonly called the Olivet Discourse, the teaching of Jesus given on the Mount of Olives, chapters 24 and 25. And I will endeavor, with the Lord's help, you can pray for me to have his help, to correctly interpret and interpret the plain sense of things that are not so easy and things over which there's a lot of controversy. Listen as I read today the beginning part of this discourse, chapter 24, verses 1 through 14. We are stopping in the midst of things but trying to keep it in uh, manageable parts. So we are not completing a discourse. Jesus will be going right on with verse 15 as we try to pick it up, Lord willing, next time. Listen to God's Word. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ, and they will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. May God bless this, His holy work. Whether you were beholding the Rocky Mountains, the Swiss Alps, the Himalayas, the Andes, or any other wonderful sight, similar sight in the world. I think you will agree with me that the sight of mountain ranges is one of the great spectacular 
scenes of nature that we all love to behold. They have a sort of visual effect on us. They satisfy the eye and even the spirit as we look at the mountains. And when you study a range of mountains, you can soon become aware of a visual effect that every artist knows about quite well. That is that the mountains that are closest to you, if you're painting them, you need to know this or your painting will be all wrong. The mountains closest to you are the ones best defined in sharper lines and bolder colors. And then you can look past them and you see the same colors but more faded hues as you move to the next range of peaks. And then if you are looking at a great range of mountains, you look really far out to the horizon and the mountains become so faded in their hue and color that they almost seem to just blend right in to the sky. Well, from your vantage point, you're looking at mountains. And as far as you know, you know, it it, it looks like this mountain is two inches from this mountain and that one's four inches further. But of course, you would know in your mind, in your rational thinking, that these mountains are very far apart. They may even be hundreds of miles distant from one another. If you would keep that image that I've just given you in your mind as you listen to this text of Matthew 24, not only this week but in coming weeks, it will help you. Because we're now moving to study prophetic scripture that looks at true events, predicted events, some of which are quite close and in bold relief. Others, which are equally spoken of, are farther away and not yet having been seen in history. For we are talking about the prediction of the Son of God, about the end of the world as we know it. Now, Matthew's gospel is known and unique for the long blocks of teaching narrative that it contains. We've pointed this out in the past. Here we enter now the beginning. Some would put chapter 23 together with 24, but even though it too is nearly all a monologue of teaching from Jesus, it is somewhat separate in subject matter from 24 and 25. And people would look at this and see here the next longest block of teaching from Jesus after that of the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7 that we spent many weeks looking at what seems like a long time ago now. Here we come in what is called the Olivet Discourse to a narrative that, as I've said, has explicit teaching about things yet to come in history. If you want the $4 word today, and I use $4 words only reluctantly in the pulpit, I said to somebody not long ago, I bet you could count on the fingers of both hands the times in 34 years of ministry I've used the word eschatology from the pulpit, but I'll use it today. This is about eschatology. That's a $4 word that the theologians apply to predictions of the future, the last things, the final things that bring us to the grand climax that God has in store when he will bring judgment on unbelief, and we know from other places that he will join to that judgment a remaking of the cosmos itself so that there will be new heavens and a new earth. 
as a final home for redeemed people to dwell with the Lord. Now, the major focus of these end-time things in Matthew is on judgment, because after all, it is the judgment on Jerusalem and on her empty way of religion that has been so central to what we've been looking at up to this point. And it just continues here and moves out in scope. Now, I trust you all know that prophetic Scripture is notoriously difficult to deal with. There are always people who want to construct from it detailed maps to somehow find an analogy or an equivalent of everything that is given in current events and say, here's the chronological timeline, here's exactly what you can look for, and they always go wrong in doing this because they are violating the very intent of what prophetic Scripture is. Scripture gives us prophecy normally in a, I would call, a pictorial form, or we call it a metaphorical form, word pictures of things that are going to happen, drawn sometimes in vivid colors, almost like a a slideshow or a visual show that was flashing many images on the screen, one after another, and you derive from that a, a whole impression of imagery that that makes you think of on a theme or understand a message, but you don't derive from it the same as you would from some detailed, slow-moving, careful study that says this happens, then this happens, and then this happens, and giving me the way I might like it to be, a nice little progression that I can put together. Prophecy, in other words, is more suggestive than it is definitive. Now, that's part of its nature, and that's the way God intended it. And we violate it when we come to it with a sort of wooden literalism, and we tend to form wrong conclusions all the time. Some of you, as we proceed through this, will be saying, well, I was taught that this means that, or this equals this. And I'm going to try to teach you the plain sense of the passage itself, not some school or, or uh, you know, whole... Uh, concept of interpretation that might impose things on the text. I'm going to try to be very careful about that. Approaching this prophetic text with humility and with prayer that God would give us wisdom. Now, there are lessons to be learned. I'm not saying there's nothing we can know here. There are many broad principles and things to be warned about and to understand in concept. But we need to be careful that we're not putting more on the text than it is intended to give. Well, in the opening portion of Matthew 24, I believe we need to see Jesus painting here with broad brushstrokes, introducing the plan of God literally for the end of the world. And he sees this as something that unfolds by implication from his own cross and resurrection and the events that are about to take place in just a couple days from the time that he is speaking. You remember the kingdom of God, it's been stressed in Matthew, has become visible, has come among men and women with the first coming of Jesus Christ. But it's not a final kingdom. It's a kingdom we can know about, respond to. But in a sense, we live at the intersection of the ages as Christians. You see, something has changed us. We are no longer spiritually dead and hopeless as we once were. We have found 
hope and forgiveness and purpose and eternal life in Jesus Christ. We're pardoned. We're forgiven. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We've changed a great deal. But as these hopeful new creations, we also know we're not complete. Not everything that's going to happen to us has happened to us. There is held out for us a prospect of more that will come. We are new creations, but incomplete creations. God is going to do more to finish us in the conclusion of history in the ages. As Jesus Christ brings history to a close, we too will be concluded and changed and given a wonderful prospect of the fullness of eternal life and joy with him when that all occurs. So there's no ultimate threat for the believer in all this teaching, but there is a tremendous threat in it for those who are apart from faith in Christ. Jesus is teaching here that history is moving towards a great day, a great event in which he who once came to earth will come again. And he'll come this time not to suffer, not to be you know, ignominious and, and uh, hardly known about, and only a few people gradually begin to realize who he is and what he's doing. But when he comes, he will be seen in a supernatural way that is, is unbelievable to us, that one person could be seen by the whole globe at once. We say, how can that happen? I don't understand that. God can do it. And he will do it. He promises when his son comes not to suffer, but to reign That is the central message of this Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and 25. And just a couple days before he went to the cross, Jesus wanted to plant this message in the minds of his disciples. I try to imagine them receiving this because they didn't have any concept of it. They they didn't even know he was departing, let alone coming again. And yet he taught them this, and they remembered it, and later on the Holy Spirit guided them to understand it. Well, let's look first of all at verses 1 to 3 here as an introduction, where there are two epic questions asked about the future. These two questions are so important. Two epic questions about the future. This was spoken on the Mount of Olives. If you've ever visited the Holy Land, you know the Mount of Olives. It's, you know, if you expect a mountain, you'll be disappointed. It's really just a, a low hill but it rises. There's a, there are cemeteries at its base and olive groves atop it and various churches and things there. But you can go, every Israel tour bus goes to the Mount of Olives because it's the best place for a panorama view of Jerusalem. You look out there, our group that went over 10 years ago had their picture taken with, in the background, the gold dome of the Muslim shrine there that's uh, the Dome of the Rock that's where the temple used to be, and the old city of Jerusalem spread out behind. It's a wonderful view. It's a view that, that is in every book about the Holy Land. And so the disciples and Jesus had departed from the immediate precincts of the temple and of the teaching to the enemies of Christ. He's done teaching them at the end of 23. And notice how 23 ends because it is a springboard into 24 when Jesus left. And the last thing he said to those enemies, the leaders of the temple, was this. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That itself is very prophetic. And it's a springboard right into chapter 24. 
Because now, alone with his disciples, they are casting their eyes back, and the other Gospels describe it a little more fully as they say, look, Lord, what amazing buildings. And they were indeed amazing, the Temple of Herod. We've never seen it. There's no photograph of it. But descriptions of it survive. And the descriptions tell us that the rebuilt Temple of Herod, which was rebuilt from the earlier temple of, the, of David, or Solomon's day, was a wonder, an architectural wonder of the ancient world. White marble, gold plate, when the sun shone on it, the descriptions of it were that it just dazzled the eye in the sun. And I'm sure that's what they saw and what they reacted to. They said, Lord, look at that. Is not this central place, the, the epicenter of worship of our nation, a marvelous thing? And Jesus responded them and said, I tell you, the day will come when not one stone of it will be left standing on another. Now, they responded to this and asked him the two questions. Verse 3 has the questions. And they really asked essentially two questions. Well, when will this amazing thing happen? When is the first question. And then, what will be the sign? And they add some language of your appearing or revealing yourself and of the end of the age. Now, to them, these were all parts of one question because if the temple was going to be thrown down, that would be the end of the world as far as they were concerned. It was the end of their world, and they couldn't even imagine this. Their whole nation would be undone if the temple was destroyed. So they said, well, Lord, this must have to do with when you're going to finally step out and reveal yourself and be the great king we've always expected. So in one question in their mind, when will it happen and what will be the signs of it? Now, as we stand back, we see it's really two questions, and they really speak about two different things. The first question they asked, you see, when would the temple expire, is already answered. That temple isn't standing. You can't take its picture because it hasn't existed for almost 2,000 years. Exactly 40 years, just about 40 years after Jesus spoke, we don't know the precise year in which Jesus spoke, but probably 30 A.D., 40 years later, in 70 A.D., the Romans came in and in a devastating campaign took Jerusalem apart, killed hundreds of thousands of Jews, and took the temple down, burned it, scattered it, so that it was no more and does not exist to this day. Now, that was probably, if we have a date, and the debate of, uh, is over Matthew, when it was written, we th- would think Matthew probably wrote in the mid-60s or early 60s A.D., if that is a correct assumption, that actually happened about six years after Matthew was writing, but 40 years after Jesus predicted it. But that is not the only thing in view in Matthew 24. Now, there are people, a particular school of interpretation, who will say that everything in chapter 24 has to do with 70 A.D. and nothing else. I think that's incorrect. There's a more complex way of looking at it that is probably the more accurate way. And to say that while he speaks about that event indeed, the second question of the disciples points beyond 70 A.D. to a more distant event when the revealing of Christ in his glory and the fullness of his reign will come as God sends his Son to be the judge over all persons formerly living and now dead, and those alive when this happens. And he will gather to himself the believers for eternal safety and blessing. 
and condemn unbelief forever. This, of course, is what the New Testament calls the momentous return of Christ, his historic return. Now, here's the difficulty. You know, Jesus is taking these two events and uniting them and blending them into one picture of things he's going to to give us in this chapter. Remember the mountain ranges. When you look at the mountains, you see the nearest range. They're very close. There they are. But you also see the mountains farther out. I would love it if I could take my Bible. Maybe we could even have a handout. And we give all of you a blue magic marker and a yellow magic marker. And then we'd study this chapter, and I'd say, now, mark these verses because these verses in yellow are strictly about what's going to happen to Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And mark these verses in blue because they're strictly about what's going to happen in the future. Well, guess what? Here's what your chapter would look like if you marked it correctly. You'd have some verses marked in yellow, some in blue, but you'd have others in green where both colors combined. And that's the difficulty of this Scripture as we look at it, the overlapping of predictions that see the whole mountain range together, a localized event that has happened and a future event that has not yet happened. But you see... The wonderful assurance is that the first did happen, and by knowing that, that Jesus spoke accurately about that, we have greater trust that he knows what he's talking about when he speaks about the part that has not yet happened. Now, secondly, after these two epic questions, we come to begin today to delve into this text, and I'm really going to fly here over things where we could almost have a sermon about each point easily if we wanted to go at that speed, but I choose not to go at that speed. I want to look secondly at the, some of the historic signs that he gives us in verses 4 through 14 that in a general, broad-stroke way tell us things that Jesus in verse 8 called all of these things by one title, the beginning of birth pains. Now, I don't have to pretend to be the expert and tell any mother sitting in this room what birth pains are, something you've experienced that I haven't. Labor pains, you remember, don't come when a child is conceived. They don't come when a human embryo is at its second or third or ordinarily fourth or fifth month of development. You hope they don't come then. They don't even come, we hope, at the sixth or seventh month of development. They come at the end at the conclusion of the ninth month, and they signal something. They signal that a birth is impending. Now, having said that, you all know that labor pain is is not a a highly specific pain. It doesn't say, oh, I've got the twins. The baby's going to be born in five minutes. It doesn't work quite that way, does it? You know, the pains can begin, and it may be a long time, or it may be a short time from when they begin. I remember when our first child was due, my wife primarily thought she had an all-day backache. She'd never experienced this before. She said, oh, my back just hurts so much, and it just won't seem to quit. Well, then the the backache gradually over the day began to change, and it, it got stronger, and it got weaker. And then it got fairly specific, and it went away. And we began to say, wait a minute, this isn't a backache. This is that warning sign that we were told about. And how far away are these pains? We started timing them. And when they were five minutes apart, we headed for the hospital. Now, it was 12 more hours after we got to the hospital before the baby arrived. But 
we obeyed the warning. We believed the warning and believed that a birth was impending, and indeed it was. Now, there are four broad categories of birth pains. There are, you could break it down more than this, but I like to keep them in categories for convenient speaking here. Four types of birth pains which are given here as nonspecific precursors to the decisive judgments of God that Jesus is talking about. They are warnings that humanity cannot expect to have life as usual, you know, business as usual, Monday through Friday, continuing forever. And yet they do not point to any specific dates. Here's the first category, the first birth pain, reminding us that God is moving towards a historic end of things. Verses 4 and 5, I'll call this one, the multiplication of false messiahs and religious claims. Jesus said, many are going to come in my name and claim, I am the Christ. Well, that happened a lot in his time. When messianic expectation was high, there were many who came along and claimed the things that only Christ could fulfill. And it's still going on. Religious options, not necessarily people saying, I'm Christ, but every kind of religious option you can think of being multiplied in our day. Second Peter 2 condemns those that it calls false teachers among you who secretly introduce destructive heresies, exploiting gullible people with stories they've made up. You know, there are times when I want to print that verse out in, in big print on about a four-foot-wide banner and say, false teachers among you introducing destructive heresies, exploiting gullible people with stories they've made up, and take the banners to every Walden bookstore, every Barnes & Noble bookstore, and put it over their New Age, occult, and even their religion sections. Because that's what a large share of the publishing industry in these categories is these days. And the general public is so untaught about the truth of Scripture that they buy it. Oh, here's a novel idea. It sounds good to me. Now, oh, this is pretty exciting. What do you think of this one? Oh, here's the decisive, you know, thing that tells us that Christianity is all nonsense, and we can believe this author who comes with no evidence and but a lot of creative expression. And many especially like the New Age kind of Christ or Messiah that's being promoted today, which is not a person with a name, well, except that actually it's you. And, and they're told, now, just look inside yourself and find the Christ. Find the Christ spirit or such language. And this will be your Messiah, a little sort of Jiminy Cricket spirit God that lives in you that you can shape and mold and understand and it, it will comfort you. Well, that's the first warning that there are always going to be these multiplying options of things that say they are the Christ, but they are not. Verses 6 and 7, a second class of signs, disasters that are both man-made and natural, seen all over the world. Well, we know a lot about this, don't we? You will hear wars and rumors of war. You will see famines and earthquakes. What does war come from? It comes from human pride. It comes from human hatred and violence expressing itself against another person. But the Bible diagnoses deeper and says it comes from a rebellion against God, and it's really God that everybody's fighting. And then they fight all the people that get in their way while they fight God. Well, wars spin off many things, as we know, oil shortages, famines, all kinds of difficulties in this geopolitically united world that we have today. 
Now, you could say, I don't really see how this is a sign of the, of the end times or anything. We've always had wars. There have been wars before Jesus came along, wars ever since. How is this a sign? Well, I would just venture this to you. Of course, you're right. There have always been wars. There have always been natural so-called disasters. But I'm quite fascinated to read the estimate of historians who really don't have a defensive biblical prophecy in mind when they pull together figures and statistics and say that in the 20th century alone, more people were killed in wars than in any other previous century going back as far as they are able to go. Indeed, the Greeks had wars, the Babylonians had wars, the Romans had wars, but numbers and scale and intensity, if you put that together, the last century we have lived through, at least a portion of the 20th century, many of you, few of you are 20s, you know, if you're real young here, you're a 21st century person, but the last full century we look at has been the most warlike and destructive of any century. It would seem we could say that these birth pains indeed are accelerating in their intensity and they seem to be headed for a climax. Now, what's the point Jesus is making? To scare us? Not Actually, just the opposite. He says, see that these things don't alarm you. Christian people should be the last people who would be naively upset because they expected universal peace and happiness and prosperity when they saw nuclear weapons and war and terrorism. He says, be alert, be aware, be vigilant, but you need not be paralyzed in any kind of fear. Well, time's going quickly here. The third historic sign is gathered from all of verses 9 through 13. And it's a varied description there of widespread persecution for the cause of Christ and resulting apostasy by some who had professed faith. Now, this began to happen in the New Testament, the book of Acts even. There were those with some surface level profession of faith who were never possessed by their faith. And when the pressure was on, they turned away. They even turned in their friends and turned upon them. Well, once again, we have an intensity of this because those who look at Christian martyrdom tell some people are absolutely surprised to know this. They think when they hear Christian martyrdom, they think of the first century people killed by lions in the Colosseum. Well, that was a terrible time. And there are many other times of terrible martyrdom. But this time it's even more stark than the warfare statistic because in the 20th century, it's not only the most people martyred, there are those who say, I don't have the statistics, but those more reliable than I who know this who say that the estimate is that more people were martyred for the faith of Jesus Christ in the 20th century than in all the 19 centuries combined. That's pretty amazing. And it begins to tell us there's something going on. You see, this secularism that we talk about in the world today that has taken hold, especially in Great Britain and Europe, formerly Christian places, people say, oh, well, it's just a neutral thing. You know, people aren't interested in God anymore. It's just, no, it isn't neutral. You understand what's going on in the secularism in, in our world, and you find out it's both anti-religion and anti-Christian in a very strong way. And we should not be surprised that many believers are feeling the pressure 
in every part of the world. They feel it from the mockery of the university. They feel it from the mockery of the entertainment industry. But these things should not surprise us. Jesus predicted they would happen just as they happened to him. A fourth sign, a fourth birth pain that he predicts here is in verse 14. And it's an interesting and unique one. As he says, this gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Now you'd think that believers who were facing wars and famines and earthquakes and persecution, why they all would go into caves and huddle there and, and just kind of hang together and, and avoid any contact with the world. You know, like a frightened little minority, outcasts. But Jesus says, no, exactly the opposite is going to happen. In the face of all that I'm telling you is going to come, my disciples are going to go out and they're going to speak in my name the truth of who I am and my cross and my resurrection, and they're going to boldly declare it, and every continent of the earth, every nation, is going to receive it as a testimony. That doesn't mean every man, woman, and child ever born is going to hear the gospel. But it says every part of the world is going to hear it. Once again, think of the intensity issue. Did you know that in 1900, the year 1900, the Bible was translated into about 300 languages or dialects? 300. As we have crossed now the year 2000, the number of translations of the Bible into dialects and languages is approaching 2,000. Do you have any idea what radio has done? What the Internet has done? Ours is the first generation since the time that Jesus made this declaration that his gospel would be preached in every corner of every nation that could have a realistic concept of saying why this is nearly true in our time. It's a realistic goal that appears to be very much in sight. Well, you see, now you have a big picture. We're going to get more detail in coming weeks. What applications quickly would we draw here for today? Real quick. One is to ask and answer a question people always want to know. Are we living in the last days? I get asked that frequently. Are we living in the last days? I have a simple answer. Yes. Absolutely. That's not a question I have to even ponder. We absolutely are living in the last days. The Bible says so. The book of Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon all men as the Old Testament predicted it would happen, quote, in the last days. Hebrews 9.26 says Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to God, quote, at the end of the ages. 1 John 2.18 says, children, this is the final hour. The decisive events have dawned, the cross and the resurrection. God is now ready to unfold the last chapter. You say, well, it's been a 2,000-year chapter. Indeed. But it's his chapter, and it's unfolding as he knows it to be, and it is the last chapter. And there is nothing missing in the significant prophetic events that God has given us to expect that would keep that chapter from being ended today. Today. Assigning dates isn't the issue. Becoming prophecy experts is not the issue. Matthew 24 and the prophecy of Jesus here wants us to know that history is going someplace. 
history means something. It's not a lot of random, meaningless events. It's a comprehensive plan carried out sovereignly by God across ages of time, and every event in it is, is happening in a channel that God has dug for it to happen. The question of this text for now is this. Will you be one who is still standing to greet the coming Lord? Do you see verse 13? I skipped over it. It says, when many are falling, when many's profession is proved false, when they don't stand anymore, when they run and flee from this Christ they once identified with, some will stand. Many will stand. And those who stand and endure will be saved, the text says. You see, real Christianity perseveres because its source is in God. It's in an unfailing source. He who began a good work in you will bring that work to completion. When? In the day of Christ. No doubt about it. What God begins, he finishes. And Jesus preached this last long sermon in Matthew to call forth spiritual long-distance runners. Not prophecy experts, but people who would be level-headed, clear-thinking, warmly loving, and boldly preaching the great good news of what God has inaugurated for this last age of earth. If you think the event of the second coming of Christ is something, even as a Christian, let's face it, even as Christians, we think this event is incredible, don't we? You say, I know the Bible says it, but it seems too incredible. Well, let me replace it with this thought, if I might. The thing that's really incredible, that's more incredible, if something like that can be said, is that God came in the first place in Jesus Christ. That he was born of a virgin, that he grew in the way he did, that he went to a cross, rose from a grave, ascended into heaven. The things God has already done are all incredible. Why do you think he will not do the last thing that he tells us he will do? When he's brought it all to pass, God finishes what he begins. He who came once to suffer and die and rise again will come again to reign. Father, continue to teach us these great things. Give us that expectant, true, and joyful hope that observes the time, waits in patience, and gives you praise for what you are doing in history. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've really devoured...